Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we are joined by Anand Girardas, who is the author most recently of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, published in 2018. His other books include The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas, about a Muslim immigrant's campaign to spare from death row the white supremacist who tried to kill him, and India Calling, an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking, about returning to the India his parents left. Anand is one of the most engaging and important thinkers of our time, and it's a great pleasure to have him on the program. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let's jump straight into it and begin by talking about the billionaire class and philanthropy. Can you talk about how philanthropy has changed over time and this new relationship or sort of political ideological project, uh, it seems to me, has perpetuated maybe some of the worst beliefs about elite wisdom? Yeah, you know, I think that when we use the word uh, philanthropy, we're describing generally a, a modern phenomenon that that scholars talk about as being about 100 years old, which is different from charity, right? Charity is as old as humankind. I'm sure you could find some animals that do charity also. Um, but, you know, charity is in most of the major religions. Charity can be, uh, you know, people with not much helping other people with not much, um, so on and so forth. Um, when we talk about philanthropy, we're really talking about a phenomenon that in the United States about 100 years ago, when you started to have these massive Gilded Age uh, industrial revolution fortunes. And the fortunes were on a scale um, where, you know, you had kind of the first people we would call billionaires, whether or not they had a literal billion dollars in those days, but they certainly had billion dollars in today's dollars. Rockefeller, Carnegie, Coopers, others, where when they decided they wanted to do charity, went to give back, they were immediately operating on the scale of governments simply by the act of giving back. So, so you had these, you had, you know, when Rockefeller's financial advisor told him, sir, your fortune is rolling, rolling like an avalanche, piling up like an avalanche, you got to give it away. Otherwise, you know, it's going to pile up and overwhelm you. When he started doing that, he was immediately operating at the scale of a government, a state government, or even a federal government in certain areas. And that's when, that was the new phenomenon in history 100 years ago. Um, people who by the act of giving on that scale in these kind of new scientific ways were a kind of exerting power in a way that was just fundamentally different from traditional notions of charity. There was, there was really this element of power and almost private governance involved. Why should such people have a say over what schools are like or what health is like or things like that? Second, there was a concern that arose in that time um, about you know, are you using latter-day generosity to cover up um, the sins of how the money was made? Are these modern-day papal indulgences where you're getting on the right side of God, uh, you know, right before you, you pass away? Um, so, so that is the history, and that's the kind of modern setup 100 years ago. A lot of that, as you can tell, continues to this day. There's a lot of continuity when you think about the Zuckerbergs and others. I think a couple things that are interesting and new in our time, different from the origins, is um, a lot of the biggest philanthropists now are young. It, it, it's not it it's not quite always the you know you spent sixty or seventy years in one mode and now you're like 
giving back at the end of your life, it's a little more dual track where if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you've made a bunch of money, you know, by your thirties or forties, um, you are currently engaged in my view in undermining American democracy because of your profit lust, your desire not to be regulated, your desire to platform white supremacists and Russian uh, meddlers and others and not be uh, pushed back against. And at the same time, in your 40s, you've made enough money already that you're in that atonement phase in parallel, giving back to democracy, giving back to fighting diseases. And so in that sense, it's not just papal indulgences or atonement that we're seeing. We're really seeing philanthropy used as a contemporaneous lubricant in an ongoing engine of power grabbing and money grabbing. And beyond just trying to sort of repair with the left hand what they're destroying with the right hand, an important point that you make is that there's a sort of cultural ideological component to this project that sort of convinces people, ordinary working class, poor Americans, and others around the globe, but here we'll focus on the U.S., that in fact the elites that destroyed or helped destroy the system are the ones that are absolutely needed to fix the system. Yes, you know, and, and so you're exactly right. So, you know, A, there's this question of, of are you exerting power when you, give, when, you, when you give back in these ways? And by the way, that's a question that applies even to people who have done nothing wrong in how they made the money, right? Which may be a very small number of people, right? And that's interesting in itself. So, you know, we, we may say a lot of the big fortunes of our time are certainly complicit in great crimes of our time, whether it's wage theft or tax avoidance, tax evasion, rigging public policy to their benefit. Um, those are, in a way, the easy cases. If you've made money causing great harm and you're donating a small amount of that money to doing social good, it's kind of obvious that it's problematic. Um, I think if you were to almost construct a different example of, you know, Serena Williams, who has not made money by harming people, who's made money by being good at professional sports, um, and I think we could see that fortune very differently from a Mark Zuckerberg's, to be sure. But if Serena Williams decided she wanted to reinvent all public schools in America, and she has the money to do some, make some headway on that, I think I would still have the kind of small d democratic concerns about the power that that would buy her to do that, just because of a, you know, nothing having nothing to do with who she is and how she made the money, just having concerns about. The, the importance of democratic voice in making these decisions. Um, and then there's, you know, the issue uh, you raised um, of uh, the way in which this giving is used to alter the culture and alter the way in which people view this class of plutocrats as a whole. Right? So there's the issue of individually, how do we see you based on what your record is? But there's also like, class reputation, which is different from personal reputation. And again, if you're someone like Bill Gates, your personal reputation may be okay, maybe good enough that you don't need that scrubbed. But Bill Gates still has a problem of having a bad class reputation, right? In, in an age of inequity like ours, people like Bill Gates and by association, he's likely to be resented. He's likely to be, you know, subject to kind of questions about why did you have this money in the first place? And so, Everybody in that class, in a way, has a vested interest 
in injecting into the into the bloodstream of social discourse um, a, a, an idea that these people are not only not problematic, that's like 101, that in fact they are the solution to the problem you, you might be worried about. That yes, inequality is terrible. Many of these people now get out in front of this in a way that the robber barons didn't. They say, yes, inequality is terrible. This is terrible. It's sad. It's sad, Vincent. It's really sad. And uh, I feel bad about it. They write books about it. The American dream is dead. We got to rebuild the American dream. So they get out in front of it. And then they say, and only I can fix it, to quote Donald Trump, right? I can do this. And the reason they say so is it is a new idea. To go back to your first question, it's this notion of philanthrocapitalism, which is this notion that a lot of the money made now in the last few decades is really entrepreneurial money where these people are swashbucklers of the hardest problems in the world. They invented internet platforms. They did business straddling the globe in an era of globalization. They are uniquely qualified to solve tough problems, even if they're the ones who caused them. We see how this plays out locally. We're speaking to you from Michigan City, Indiana, sort of devastated Rust Belt town uh, that's felt all of the worst impacts of neoliberal economic policies, the war on drugs, and everything else uh, over the last four decades. And even here locally, we see how this plays out, where our local power company, NIPSCO, has a coal-fired power plant uh, that people have been trying to close for some time, polluting the hell out of the west side of Michigan City, which is a predominantly black and poor neighborhood, uh, dumping coal ash all over uh, the local ecology, uh, and yet, you know, they have their tentacles and everything. They they fund sports leagues. They fund after-school programs. And so there's always this problem when we're doing local organizing uh, that a lot of people see NIPSCO. They hate NIPSCO because they get the terrible bills uh, from NIPSCO every month, uh, and they know that they're polluting. And yet at the same time, that very entity could be funding the local after-school program or slow-pitch softball league. And this creates real challenges on the ground doing the kind of community organizing work that we're doing. So it doesn't just play out nationally, as I'm sure you understand, or globally, um, but just giving you a sense of how this plays out at the very local level. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting just hearing that story, and there's so many different stories I hear like that in different parts of the country, my guess would be, maybe I'm wrong, and tell me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the people who experience what you've experienced would not necessarily use the language you started with of like neoliberal That's right. whatever. That's right. Right? So there's this set of things that a lot of people have experienced or gotten in their lungs or, you know, e experienced in terms of things happening to their hours at work or experienced in terms of what happened to their school or what happened to this or that. But... I think those of us who are critics of the neoliberal order have not done a great job of, and the word neoliberalism almost like comically captures this, of providing frames, organizing frames, easy, accessible ways of understanding this that allow people to see that um, reality as part of that story. And my guess would be, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, a lot of the people who experience those things, my guess would be, are also skeptical in some cases of big government initiatives, oh, activist government initiatives 100%, to help those, 100%. help those things. Yep. And so, and, and this is what's very interesting about America where you have this, you know, by, by European standards, let's say 
you know, extreme examples of the of this kind of slash and burn economics and neglect, and people literally carry it in their lungs and on their faces and in their hands. But compared to other rich countries, people are more skeptical of public fixes to to their own problems. And some of this, a lot of this, is the power of big companies, and it's the you know false consciousness created by billionaires in the way that I write about. But I think a lot of this also, and this is the more optimistic point, amounts to a failure on the part of those of us who want an alternative to make our offer to folks like the folks you're describing um, compelling. If you've lived what you're describing, people have lived in your community, and you're not reliably 100% voting for the Democratic Party, that's not on you. That's on the Democratic Party, to yep. be honest. Yep. 100%. And what what is going on with the Democratic Party that it does not have 99% of the votes of the people you just described? Yeah. And we're in a trifecta-controlled Republican state in a deeply red county on sort of an island, a blue island that existed for a long time. Democrats had controlled Michigan City for decades in just this last election cycle. A Republican won for the first time in 48 years. Uh, won in 2016? Yeah. Our uh, uh, mayoral election was in 2019, the way that oh, it works it. out in our state. So for the first time in 48 years, a Republican won the mayoralship. And Democrats continue to lose seats. Uh, the numbers of people voting for Democrats continue to go down. And so one of the why, things... Why do you think that is in your area? There's a few reasons. There are structural reasons. For instance, in the early 70s, Indiana was one of the top seven most highly densely unionized states in the country. Um, that's gone down. The unions functioned as that sort of get out the vote political apparatus in states mm -hmm. like Indiana. And gave but, identity to people also. That's right. Uh, I'm, and community. I mean, one of the reasons we opened this community center that we're sitting in today, and the only reason we're doing podcasts is because of the pandemic. I mean, we spend most of our time in the real world, talking with people, holding social events, uh, creating the kinds of bonds and trust, something that you spoke about, which I thought was a really good insight for, and I don't mean to, I don't know if you're an activist or an organizer in your spare time, but for someone who isn't on the ground doing this work, I watched an interview with you recently where you talked about this lack of social, deep social bonds, trust, and relationships that progressive movements lack today. And one of the reasons we opened the community center that we did was to build those kind of communal relations and bonds and trust and not just around community organizing efforts, but watching each other's kids, having holiday parties, watching movies, barbecuing together, you know, watching sports games together. I mean, we're trying to build up from the bottom uh, in a place where community has been devastated. I mean, these towns that exist in places like Michigan City or Gary, Indiana, were towns that existed because an industry was here. I mean, Gary, Indiana exists because of U.S. Steel. Michigan City exists because of the Pullman train factories. All of those things are gone and people have moved and the population has gone down. And so with that and with the decline in unions, you no longer have union halls where people go and hang out together. Uh, people no longer go to the community churches. Uh, there are no more community centers. So part of this is the structural uh, role that the unions play. But another part of this is just a lack of community uh, hyper alienation that's been created because of these policies that devastate communities. Um, so... I apologize because I don't think I answered your question directly, but I... Um... No, that's very interesting. It's, it's something I actually think about a lot. And 
you know, it's, it's not an area I'm an expert in, so forgive me in that, but I, I often think about, I thought about this a lot in the Trump era, and I got in trouble for saying this on Twitter, that I was critiquing the Democratic Party emails that I would, you know, get, the, the fundraising emails, which are really the only emails they, they send. They're all fundraising emails. And I got really criticized because, you know, these are, you know, apparently very effective emails, like at their mission, they, they successfully raise money. They were more successful this time than last time. And people were like, what the hell do you know? Criticizing these emails. But I was not criticizing them as being bad at fundraising, right? Like I was criticizing, I'm not, because of my job, not allowed to donate anyway to anybody. And I was criticizing um, the fact that the only thing I was being asked for in emails from the Democratic Party over four years of the worst, most scary, emotionally draining, miserable period in American, one of the most such periods in American history, the only thing I was being asked for was to chip in five bucks. And there were not emails from the same entities. In a way, I was not critiquing those emails as so much as the absence of all the other emails that I could imagine. Yeah. Why weren't there emails from the Brooklyn branch of the Democratic Party saying, today Trump said X, Y, Z about shithole countries, right? Um, we're gathering in Fort Greene Park at 5 p.m. Bring an instrument or a song from your favorite you know, favorite shithole country that's not actually a shithole country. And let's like celebrate all the cultures that make up this great land. Like I was never once asked that. And I know there's other groups that do that. I'm just talking about why aren't the Democrats doing that, right? Why isn't like, why isn't there this sense of, you know, when you, I read about from earlier America, VFW halls and, and, and these, these places where the, like there was IRL, social life, right? Why aren't there medical vans, you know, on Saturdays where doctor, where the Democratic Party organizes, you know, medical people to like give free mobile health clinic kind of stuff to, to, to demonstrate the values of democratic healthcare policy in advance of being able to implement, them, right? Like why is there not more show than tell? All of the things you mentioned, we do as an independent organization uh, and the local Democratic Party. So I'll give you just real quick. 2008, Barack Obama wins Indiana. First time Indiana went blue in 44 years since LBJ. Uh, since then, Citizens United, gerrymandering, union decline, so on and so forth, right to work legislation passed. The institutional infrastructure that used to get the vote out and do the kind of mobilizing events that once existed no longer exists within the Democratic Party where I live. What we've seen is that it's largely now the people running the Democratic Party are highly professional, uh, upper middle class, uh, people who have very little connection to the thousands of people in our city who work in fast food restaurants, strip malls, gas stations, uh, and various other gig jobs are not working at all or working in the, in the black market, you know, selling drugs, doing whatever they got to do to make a living. The disconnect between the people I meet within the party who make decisions uh, and the people that I know and work with and live next to on the ground is profound. Um, I, I've and you're saying that about local, you're not even talking about Washington Democratic no. Party officials. You're talking about even your local Democratic officials. Yes, local, county, and state. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. That's scary. That, that, that certainly demystifies why you may be losing bleeding Democratic votes over time. It's, it's not surprising at all. And then when they knock on people's doors and they tell them to punch 10, which in Michigan City means, you know, you punch 10, it's all Democratic ticket. They then talk down to the people who ask them, you know, hey, I've been voting Democrat for 40 years and I'm still getting screwed. Um, what do you think? And they say, well, if you're an idiot, vote Republican. If not, keep voting Democrat. I mean, that, I, I, that's not hyperbole. That is straight up how they talk to people. And it's one of the reasons why, again, it's this very elitist um, view of where people are coming from. So even local union officials, you know, we used to have 120,000 union steelworking jobs stretching from the south side of Chicago to South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame is located, right along the south shore of Lake Michigan. Today, we have around 15,000. If you talk to union officials and you ask them, hey, why are 50 to 60 percent of your union members voting for Trump? They'll say, oh, because they're fucking idiots. Instead of doing some self-reflection, looking at the policies that people like Joe Biden and others have passed or promoted that have devastated union families, speaking to that pain and that anger, I think in a genuine way, instead you've got union officials and Democratic Party officials locally telling people, ah, they're just ignorant Trump supporters. It's so opposed to the kind of principle organizing principles that I was trained with or the kind of approach that I've been trained by really good union and, and community organizers throughout time, it's astonishing really how tone deaf they are. Yeah. And it, it, it's, I mean, I, I connect with that. And I also like, I mean, I can agree with that and also like very easily realize that I'm guilty of that also, you know, I, I think there was something about Trump over these last four years where it was just so perpetually infuriating and and um, and maddening that you know I don't in my heart of hearts I don't feel like the people who voted for him just like think differently from me like I think they made my kids less safe like I, it is not different in my mind whether whether this is correct or not you know um, I don't think it is I don't know if I should even say this but like. I'm not sure why, morally speaking, I would treat differently someone who, you know, pushed my kid on the street versus someone who voted for Trump. They're just two different ways of, like, violating my kid, um, you know. And I say that we have relatives who I put in that category. Right. But you're right that my attitude on that, which is, like, part of my own coping mechanism and, like, I feel what I feel, but my attitude on that is certainly not, I mean, telling people that is not going to win them over from that position. And I think that, but that's complicated because I think there is this tension between telling the truth and, and reeling people in, you know, um, and and I, 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 I just wonder how you, you know, how do you wrestle with that in, in that community where you don't want to go soft on something like Trump? You don't want to say this is not dangerous. You don't want to say this is not fascism or this is not racism, whatever it is. Um, but a lot of those points of truth telling are also conversation stoppers. They are. I would say that this is best dealt with through actual campaigns. In other words, we're currently engaged in a tenant rights campaign. 
which is far different than the DSA campaign that we're starting. So there's a DSA chapter starting in Northwest Indiana, stretching three counties. That project and the conversation that happens and the conversations that happen within that project are fundamentally different than, say, a single-issue campaign that we're working on in Michigan City where we're trying to organize a very specific apartment complex where people are being taken advantage of by their landlords. In that context, when you're talking with individual tenants, uh, the conversation centers around their material interests, trying to find common ground, trying to find some solidarity and build a sense of collectivity, and once people are in action, actually moving and doing something, uh, something positive, in other words, not just sitting down with Trump supporters and saying, hey, let's have a conversation about how we fundamentally disagree on an, any number of things. But doing it, through, which I think a lot of people think of politics, they think of politics as here's an argument, here's an argument, you make the better argument, and then your side wins. Instead of the organization of resources and, and material and people, uh, to get what you want. And so in other words, if we're going to just sit down with local Republicans or Trump supporters and debate them back and forth about whether Trump's a fascist or not a fascist or whatever, that's going to get us nowhere. If we go to specific institutions like a housing complex or like a school uh, where parents, both Trump supporters and Biden supporters alike, might actually want some more funding for their school, we try to focus on that issue, not allowing Trump supporters or anyone else to say ignorant, offensive things to people or anything like that. That's not allowed, of course. And I think if you talk to people about it in a real way like you would on the street, like, hey, just don't don't be an asshole. You know, you know what you're saying here is not right. That's not right. You know, we're not going to banish you from the room for saying this. We're going to keep you around. Just know that you can't say that. Know it's offensive. And know that you got some stuff to learn. And maybe this other person who thinks you're just some ignorant asshole white guy from the rural uh, LaPorte County in Indiana, maybe they have something to learn about you too. Um, but let's do this around a common interest, not just for the sake of having the debate or conversation, which I've found uh, hasn't been very helpful. Yeah, that's super Does that make sense? I, yeah, I, I think what it makes me think about is there's almost two categories of issues in American life today in this like polarized moment, right? And like you can almost imagine, in my view, a, a machine that we call the polarizer 6000, right? And the polarizer 6000, it's like this huge machine. And any issue that you put into the polarizer 6000 gets fully optimized for an age of division, right? It gets like sorted. In a, and so a bunch of issues, most of the major issues, have already gone through the polarizer 6000. And, you know, inequality, capitalism, uh, you know, healthcare for all or not, uh, you know, the critical race theory or whatever, you know, anything that has gone through that, the camps are fully baked. People basically do not easily move back and forth. Um, people are not necessarily interested in moving people back and forth. And maybe there's a once in a lifetime political figure who changes a little bit of the calculus or maybe there's something, but generally speaking, things are baked. But then there's some issues that have not yet gone through the polarizer 6,000. And, you know, some of that may be just that, like, I would actually say a wealth tax is interestingly one of those, in part because it's relatively new, right? It was not a huge part of the debate, became a big part of the debate in the primary in 2020. And if you looked at the polling on it, 55% of Republicans liked Warren's wealth tax plan. 
I, I think part of that is because a lot of people, even Republicans, know they're not billionaires. But I think part of it was it just hadn't yet been through the process of the polarizer 6,000. I think if you give that issue five more years, it will be as baked and as tribalized and as immovable as any other issue. But while it was still in, like, we just, it just hadn't been subject to the process of polarization yet. There was still some hope. One, the, the basic area where um, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't gone through the polarizer 6,000 is local issues. Yeah. Local issues that in a way don't fit, that, that are not like about those big categories, right? I mean, as you know so well, better than me, a lot of local issues just don't, they don't actually like map onto like, do you like Keynesian economics and all, right? They're just, they're just more particular. They're just more like, what do we do about this thing, right? They're not, and so I think it's interesting to think about how do you use those issues that are not yet polarized or, or not even, potentially not even polarizable. Um, how do you use them to get people to have conversations that might actually pull some of the other issues back from the polarized state, right? If you can build trust, and, and my simple example of this is like, I, um, a friend of some time ago told me she, she lives on a lake and the lake has a toxic algae problem and there's Trump people who live around the lake and there's, you know, strident Democrats like her live around the lake and, you know, they, get together and they talk and they build relationships because they're talking about the algae and the algae doesn't map onto the algae is not about climate change. It's, it's like literally just algae. Yep. Yep. And it's, and, and what, but, but, but the algae doesn't stay. What happens is the algae doesn't stay with the algae. The algae allows her to talk to people and build a relationship and a habit of exchange that then might, this is the might, you know, the part that maybe doesn't work. But maybe there's an opportunity there to then talk about one of the more polarized things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to talk about because they've bought themselves some trust through the non-polarized issue. And even if you can't come together to work on the issue, what I will say is that we at least should have a dialogue. So if you have houses, people sitting at home in this fragmented media landscape, you know, on my block, you got 10 homes, you knock on each door. One guy might be spending all day listening to AM talk radio. The next guy might be getting all of his news from Amy Goodman and the Young Turks. The next house might not watch any news whatsoever. So even those polarizing national issues are only, they're only taking place within the households that are consuming that. And in places like Michigan City, Indiana, that's not the majority of households. The, we're lucky if we get 18 to 20% of people to vote municipal elections. We're lucky wow. if we get 45 to 50% of people to vote in presidential elections. The vast majority of people, just like the 85 million who didn't vote this time around, the that's not the majority, but here, the vast majority of people are simply not engaged. So there's a lot of houses that you'll go knock on the door and, you know, they're not going to tell you something they heard from Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity. They're going to tell you, I don't really know what the hell you're talking about. And then you can get down you know, to, okay, what are your values? How are you feeling this? How are you experiencing these things? The other thing I was going to mention is that it's also complex on our side. So in places like this, in really segregated Rust Belt areas, or like the south side of Chicago where my family's from, 
it's not just that we're dealing with the Trump supporters. You know, in Chicago in 2014 during the mayoral race against Chuy Garcia and Rahm Emanuel, every black ward in every ward in Chicago with a black plurality went for Rahm Emanuel. Every ward with a Latino plurality went for Chuy Garcia. So in these kinds of cities and neighborhoods, it's not just that there's divisions between, say, white uh, so-called conservative Trump supporters or rabid racists and then, you know, all the rest of us. It's We have uh, black professional class people in our city who tell young black people that the reason they don't have a job is because they're not pulling up their pants. We have mm. black preachers in our city who speak out against uh, immigration, uh, Latino immigrants. Um, we have... Latinos in our city who are largely working in the restaurant industry, uh, somewhere I worked for many years, uh, who routinely sort of portray the local black community as being lazy, they don't really want to work. I think one of the things that happens in our conversations is that we make wild assumptions about where people are at and wild gener generalizations. And so when I hear these kinds of conversations in, say, the New York Times or like bigger media outlets, I just think to myself, my God, is it, it's much more complex than it's being portrayed, number one. And number two, it's rife with contradictions and challenges, real challenges that we have to deal with head on, uh, I think, in order to uh, make some headway. And, and I think if the more we avoid those issues, because they are difficult to talk about. I mean, anyone who's doing this work, it's not easy to go talk about these issues. It's not easy to talk to your uh, black friends and neighbors about the fact that they shouldn't, uh, you know, treat the local immigrants this way or that way. Uh, those are difficult conversations, but they're ones that we have to have. Yeah, I just love this idea of um, these kind of local local relationships having, you know, some potential left to to fix the country where you know, any issue that becomes nationalized in this moment is basically dead. Let me ask you this, because I've already taken more time than, than you told us to take, so I apologize. But I, because we don't get to talk to folks like yourself, and folks like yourself run in circles that people like us I don't think we'll ever get to interact with. From our view, we weren't number you're, one. You're overestimating my social life, but okay. <laughs> we, uh... <laughs> We weren't surprised by Trump's victory. I don't say this as like one of these, oh, I told you so. No, I mean, I, I think people like Michael Moore, people like us who live in these areas are very aware of kind of the white working class subcultures and, and cultures that exist within that. We weren't surprised by Trump's victory. In fact, a lot of us in our area expected it. Since then, uh, you know, even in the last six months, we weren't surprised by the the uprisings, the BLM uprisings. I mean, we live in a city of 30,000 people. We had over 1,000 people show up to our rally in Michigan City, in a city of 30,000 people. The kind of anger and resentment that's boiling in the undercurrents of society in the towns and cities where, you know, mainstream reporters and journalists don't spend much of their time scares the shit out of me. As a combat veteran, as someone who's spent time in war, an unjustified, immoral, and illegal war, um... I worry that we are well along the path of people willing to take up sort of more violent acts in this context, far beyond, say, what um, people in the mainstream media or corporate press might be willing to recognize. And my example of this is when the uprising started 
for the George post the murder of George Floyd in Atlanta, protesters went to the CNN headquarters. They started smashing windows and doing all kinds of things. I remember watching the CNN reporters go, I can't believe, pe- why are people doing this? To Like, why would they do this to our station? If you talk to most of the working class poor people where we're from, there is an anger and resentment that is visceral and deep about both political parties, elites in the media, uh, some of this is fed by Trump's rhetoric, of course, but a lot of this existed prior to Trump. Uh, and I guess my question to you is, because you get to talk to maybe not that many, but more than we would, people in that kind of billionaire class, people who have this kind of wealth and influence, is there a concern on their behalf that this is getting sort of far beyond, hey, let's do some minor programs and help people out? The concern I have is if we don't do major programs for areas like this and allow them to continue to slip into, uh, you know, extreme poverty and all the rest, uh, that the response is, I'm worried about the response, um, you know, and, and as someone who would like to see radical political change, but as someone who also doesn't want to see a ton of people getting shot or tortured or murdered or arrested for political reasons, um, Avoiding that situation, I don't mean to sound too dramatic, but I think one of the number one tasks of our time is to avoid a sort of violent, uh, extreme violence that could be the result of, uh, you know, not making the kind of reforms that we need. I will put it this way. You know, if you think about almost a, America as, as like traveling in 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 space in a in a kind of zero gravity environment just traveling on the course it's traveling at the speed it's traveling if there's no alteration made to the course that it's on right now i don't see the current course as being compatible with both peaceful survival of the country as one entity um and or continued representative democracy. Uh, you know, I, I think if the current course you could, I mean, it very easily lose the latter. I mean, I think Trump showed that we're not that far away from potentially losing the latter. I mean, it, you know, if a couple things had gone differently, um, he might well have stolen the election despite losing it. That could easily have happened. I mean, there are a couple Republican people here and there without a backbone um, at the kind of election administrator level could have gone very differently. So um, I don't think it's a provocative statement to say, you know, the, the course we're on, in, uh, in the course we're on representative democracy, I don't feel is guaranteed. And I think a lot of us would have felt it was relatively guaranteed several years ago. I think now it'd be a foolish position to take to say it's, guaran- it's guaranteed. Um, so, you know, but, but I think the other point that may feel a little more provocative, but I, but, I, but I think, again, is based in reality, is that on the path we're on now, I don't think it's guaranteed that we are kind of one country continue to be one country from here on out living together peaceably. I don't know whether that means there is, you know, more growing demands as you sometimes hear for some types of breakage and California going its way or dividing the country through like these are all fringy kind of loony things, but you've heard them. Yeah. You know, and do one possibility is we start to hear more of those things and more mainstream 
voices. Um, I think a more realistic possibility is just, you know, what that what I have called our cold civil war that we're, I think we're already in becomes a warmer civil war. I don't think it's ever going to become like the civil war we had in the 19th century, but I don't think it needs to become that for it to be terrible. You know, I, I think when you start seeing armed people invading the Michigan legislature and plotting to, you know, kidnap uh, the governor of Michigan because of a mask mandate and you see, um, you know, militias like arriving on election day to monitor. I mean, how far, how much, how much imagination does it require? You know, you, you, you kind of add, you add a little bit of spark to some of the things we've just witnessed in the last year. And you're already in the kind of situation that you associate with some of the most dangerous countries on earth. We're not, I'm not saying we're going to go that way, but we're, you know, we're, 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 a, a, we're kind of a couple drinks away from that kind of course. Um, and it's because of the failure to do the kind of radical economic reforms that you were alluding to and just taking away the oxygen of pain and resentment that has just been known in every in every place where it got that extreme to produce this kind of toxic feelings and and results but it's not of course just economics right there is a enduring issue of white supremacy and entitlement that fuels a lot of these things i mean the chief domestic terror threat as many have said the government has said is is white supremacy um and so dealing with that and not just dealing with it by cracking down on gangs and cracking down on groups but we have a huge problem in this country of tens of millions of white people who have lost one way of understanding their place in the world rightly lost it right in the sense that their way of understanding being in the world was rooted in dominance and superiority and through progress that has been taken away in a way that's the measure of progress the measure of justice but i think those of us who want that future to to arrive as quickly as possible have not done a great job of replacing the bad way of seeing oneself that we are taking away through progress with other ways of seeing oneself and in a way i think a society owes people who are you know, who, whose conception of themselves or their place in the world is stolen by change. I think it's not just that those people have to figure it out for themselves, right? That's the libertarian approach to social change. I think it is on all of us to help people see who they will be on the other side of the mountain. It's the same with men, right? We have rightly taken from a great many men a way of being a man that was how their dad was and how their grandfather was, but that we don't deem acceptable um, for them. You can't, you can't, you know, have the kind of impunity men used to have. You can't grab people in the office. You can't expect your wife to run around at your beck and call, whatever, all these, these changes that are good. We can't have them happen fast enough. But when you take from people a complete coherent, if dangerous way of seeing themselves in the world, of understanding who they are, of recognizing themselves in a larger whole. If you take that because it's tainted and it's bad and it's disfiguring of others, you owe them a replacement. And, I, and this may be contrary. I think people, 
people don't always like to hear this because it's like, well, we don't owe them anything. Like, right? If you're a chauvinist pig, like, what, what, why do I owe you a replacement ideology? Or, but, but, but the re the reason is we're all fucked if we don't give it to them. Right. Right. Yep. And we just know this. Right. We just know this. Um, and. And so, you know, I would rather, I remember reading, this is a strange connection. I remember reading about the 9-11 hijackers, right? And so many of these guys, just like law, before they get there, right? They're just lost guys. They all have a story, like they don't know who they are. One thing's gone, they don't have the next thing. And so this is just something that's come out through so much of my reporting around the world. Like the, the obligation to give people a story to help them make sense of themselves and know who they are and feel worthy is a collective obligation. The way prosperity is a collective obligation, right? Um, Self-image and narrative and the feeling of being recognized is a collective obligation. And it is a collective obligation. And this is where I think it gets controversial. It is a collective obligation, even to those who have a warped and dangerous idea of themselves and their place in the world that is toxic, that we need to go away. We even owe them the replacement. And actually giving them that replacement sense of themselves, giving men a way of understanding what strength means, what pride means, what it means to be a good father or a good husband in an egalitarian society, giving them that is very much in everybody's interests, right? It's the, the world's not going to be a fun place for women to live if we don't teach 150 million men that in the United States as soon as possible. This country is not going to be a great place for people of color to live if we don't help white people see who they will be on the other side of the mountain. And I think that is a lot of the work that doesn't get done because we feel those people don't need to be fussed over any longer because history has been about fussing over them. Um, and I dissent from that because I think, in a way, that kind of that kind of attention at, attention um, to those psychic wounds um, is is where the only hope of any kind of broader salvation um, of the American project would lie. I couldn't agree more, Ann. And and the last thing I'll say is, you know, my gay friends who are much older than I uh, told me this and they've been saying this to me in this era of Trump, they said, Vince, do you know where the gay movement would be today, where the LGBTQ movement would be today if we cast off every homophobe we talked to since 1975? They said, do you know where we would be today as a gay movement if we canceled, didn't speak to, or banished all of the people who said the most horrendous things to us or asked us really ignorant questions about whether we were capable of raising kids or any number of things? And that has stuck with me in and in a way... Uh, you're thinking like an organizer. I try to always maintain the the mindset of an organizer because, you know, for us, it's like being right is not good enough. Uh, for me personally, uh, being on, you know, the right side of history or just speaking the truth is not good enough. Like I want to see the changes. I want to see a better world. I want to, you know, my nephews and my friends, kids to grow up in a better world. And I'm not going to die happy saying, well, at least I had the best argument against uh, you know, colonial white supremacy, capitalist patriarchy. It's like, no, what did we do to actually change those things? And the point you bring up as well about men, uh, white people benefiting from this is really important because all too often, I think it's framed in a way where men see this and they go, wait a minute. So 
you want me to be a second class citizen? That no, no, no. It's like the conversations I have with men in coming out of the Marine Corps in a hyper masculine environment, very toxic and dangerous, which is you know why so many of our friends have killed themselves and committed violent acts since coming home from the war. Uh, talking with these guys. Once you get over that hump where they don't feel like they're going to be victimized, but that they too are going to actually benefit from this and they can drop some of that just aggressive state of being and the wild thoughts. The, I mean, you see how quickly people, I mean, you could see it in people's faces when they benefit from this kind of work, you know, when they come to those conclusions and make those changes. So anyway, those were the last two things I was going to mention. I know we took way more of your time, but I, I think you're one of the more important thinkers out there right now. So I, you know, I can't thank you enough for even giving us. I, I really uh, enjoyed the conversation and learning, learning more about Michigan city, which I hope I can visit when uh, life grinds back to normal, but I really, really uh, appreciate you for what, what you're doing in the community. And, and thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you, Annan. Take care. All right. You too. You've been watching park media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we'll speak to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.